0: good morning again everybody so good to see everyone we've had a lot of guests here the past few weeks and so if you're new here i want to give you a special welcome my name is dan i'm the lead pastor here and uh, i want to invite you to come next week after church immediately after this service um, in the lobby we'll have just a time called meet the leaders a very informal time where uh, you can get to know us we'd love to get to know you and hope you'll stay for a few minutes if you have little kids um you, uh, that's what, you can keep them in child care for a few minutes so that you can get talk, talk to the leaders but uh we'd love uh to help you however we can get connected into community here and uh, we want you to join us uh, as we seek to to bring glory to god by making more disciples of jesus through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. And, uh, and so I hope you'll join us next week after the service. And if you've been here before and you've come to that um, before, you're welcome to come again and meet some other leaders. So uh, we wanna make a, a monthly opportunity for you to be able to do that. Um, last Sunday during my sermon when I was introducing Saul of Tarsus, I said that Saul was a man who hated Jesus. And there was a boy in here who gasped when he heard that. And he told his mom, but well, mom, Jesus is the best. And he's right. He's right. And I'm so glad that that little kid knows that. Because I'm like, man, if you know that uh, coming out of this place, that's, you, you, you basically hit the nail on the head. And unfortunately, not everybody believes that. And so what I would tell you is just keep telling everybody that Jesus is the best because he is. Um, Saul, or the Apostle Paul, as we often call him, uh, who later wrote much of the New Testament that we have, he did hate Jesus at one point, and he hated Jesus's followers. And at that point in his life, Saul was a very religious man. He uh, he, he was a devout uh, Jewish man, very well educated, passionate about his religion and about the the traditions of Judaism. And, and Saul, basically, he thought Jesus was a false teacher. He was a heretic. Uh, he claimed to be God, but Saul believed he was obviously lying about this for a number of different reasons. And he also thought that anybody who followed Jesus was, was just delusional, uh, that Jesus' followers were basically a bunch of blasphemers, just like Jesus was, because they, they kept proclaiming that this Jesus of this, this uh, hick town called Nazareth was God, and and that he had raised himself back from the dead after being beaten to death and then crucified, right? This was all ridiculous to Saul. Didn't make any sense on any level. And so very shortly, um, we know, after Jesus ascended to heaven, Saul made it his mission to lead the resistance against the Christians throughout all of the Roman Empire, which was massive at that point. And he began in Jerusalem where he was. He began by instigating this massive persecution against the Jerusalem Christians in the year AD 33, about there. And uh, basically Saul and his henchmen, we, we know this because he, he, he later on tells us this is what he did. He, he, he and his henchmen would go house to house in Jerusalem and they would tie up any men, women, or children who trusted in Jesus, and then they would drag them to the Jewish Sanhedrin court where these people could either renounce their faith in Jesus or be beaten to death. And fortunately, many uh, Jerusalem Christians fled from Jerusalem before Saul got to them. And as a result, uh, those scattered Christians throughout the empire began to f- fulfill Jesus' command to make more disciples of Jesus throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 8.4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In other words, the scattered followers of Jesus didn't do what you might have thought they would have done. They didn't shut up about Jesus in order to avoid persecution again. Instead, it says everywhere they went, these Christians proclaimed the good news of Jesus because they were certain, they knew Jesus had really risen from the dead. Well, after some time, when Saul, who was back in Jerusalem, um, heard about these growing communities of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, He got permission from the Jewish Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem to go hunt down all of those Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem so that he could uh, have them tried in court and and hopefully killed. And and so as we read last Sunday, Saul was going to one of those towns. He was hiking to this remote town hundreds of miles away from Damascus, uh, from uh, Jerusalem, this town called Damascus. He was going to arrest the Christians there when just as he got to Damascus, outside of those city walls, his life changed in an instant. Jesus in heaven shone down onto Saul, the Christian killer, and and he says that the light of Jesus' glory was so bright that he could not even open his eyes. He just fell to the ground in fear. And he listened, and he heard Jesus' voice And Jesus rebuked Saul for the way that he'd been persecuting Jesus' followers. And then Jesus kept Saul blind for three days. He said, get up and go into the city. And then after several days of being blind and fasting and eating no food or drink, Saul was healed by this Christian man named Ananias. And as Ananias put his hand on Saul, the, the spirit of Jesus came upon Saul and he made him born again through faith in Jesus. And instantly, I mean, this is remarkable, Saul became a completely different person. What's interesting about this is, uh, well, I do believe that there what's called, mm, it's kind of a fancy word, but it's called punctiliar salvation, meaning there's a point where you're born again. There's a point. You were dead, and then Jesus saved you. I don't believe, and I don't, I don't think that the Bible teaches there's, you know, God saves you over the course of 20 years. I think God can work on you over the course of the year, but, of 20 years, but there's a point where you were dead, and then God makes you born again. And it was just so incredibly amazing how this happened in Saul's life, because suddenly, his Desires of his heart, his greatest desires, his plan for his life, his thoughts of his mind completely, completely did a 180 from one end of the spectrum to the polar opposite of the spectrum in an instant. And he was no longer an enemy of Jesus, he was a friend of Jesus, and now all he wanted to do was advocate for Jesus. He, He was no longer a persecutor of Jesus' followers, now he wanted to be their friend. And Saul's instantaneous conversion from a Christian killer to a Christian preacher, it staggered everybody, okay? And this is the truth, no matter how, because there's so much historical evidence for Jesus and for the reality of Saul in the first century, whether you're Christian or not, you have to do something with Saul. You have to rationalize this. You can't historically argue that he didn't exist because history is against you. (laughs) No matter how secular historians try to explain and rationalize his abrupt transformation, the most obvious explanation is that Saul truly had been confronted and befriended by Jesus Christ who was back from the dead. That's where we're gonna pick up today. In Acts chapter 9, verses 19b, uh, verse 19b, uh, which means the second half of that verse. If you've got a Bible with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 19b. And before we read this, Let's ask the Lord to help us, because it is his word, and we can't do anything without him. Your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we read about Saul's life, and what you did in his life, we are astounded. And we humbly ask that you would breathe into us the more of your same spirit, that you were breathing into Saul, and into those Christians in that first century, We need you to revitalize us. Please encourage us today with the good news of your gospel. Please give us supernatural joy in you despite our circumstances. Give us more love, Lord. Give us joy in your salvation. Uh, We need you, Holy Spirit, to fill us with boldness and courage to be ambassadors for you, uh, to be ambassadors who are kind and gentle yet also devoted to the truth of your word. We ask that you would guard us from evil now. Um, Work in the kids next door and in the nursery, please. Give us power to turn from our sin and to turn to you in faith, God. We can't do it on our own. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Acts 9, 19b to 25. For some days he was, so we're we're starting in Damascus to get context here. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Stop there. Stop there. So even though the the citizens of Damascus, like I said, they were confounded, they were staggered by Saul's sudden transformation, it looks like the the Christians there welcomed him into their fellowship. And then we read that Saul wasted no time uh, entering the synagogues there and proclaiming now that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was wrong, but Jesus is the Son of God. He he, he, uh, met this resurrected Christ, On the street just right outside their own town Jesus is a savior who was sent from heaven to rescue humanity from sin and hell and death and then verse 23 starts with the phrase when many days had passed so it's basically talking about how long he was in Damascus and what it's referring to more specifically is a period of about three years so Saul had become a Christian in Damascus he then proclaimed uh, to the Jews in Damascus the gospel for a while And then we know from other writings in the New Testament that he also traveled to a region called Arabia. And uh, in Arabia, there are different thoughts of what he was doing there, but basically we know pretty confidently that he was preaching the gospel there because he ticked off a lot of people there. And he ticked off the leaders, the king of Arabia. And, and so he had to flee Arabia. He left Arabia, he came back to Damascus, and he, he started speaking about Jesus again, and that is when, in verse 23, it says that after some time, the Jews in Damascus now plotted to kill him because they were done with him. Now, somehow, Saul found out about this plan to kill him, and he knew that he had to get out of Damascus ASAP. The problem was that the Jews were watching the city gates all day and all night looking for Saul so that if he tried to escape the city day or night, they could catch him and kill him there, right? These are old cities, right? Ancient cities with one giant wall to protect the city, one entrance, one way in and out. So they knew that they could catch Saul there. Now, remember those enemies that Saul had made in Arabia? Well, we know from other writings of Saul in the New Testament that they were looking for him too now and they hunted him down in Damascus, okay? So it wasn't just that the Jews in Damascus were out for him, the Jews now had joined forces with the Arabian king to trap Saul at the gate. And that meant that Saul's attempt here to try to get out of this thing, uh, if it was the Lord's will, was gonna have to be really risky and it was gonna have to be really stealthy. This is the kind of stuff really great movies are made of, okay? This is better than Escape from Alcatraz. Um, Some of the disciples that he had made in Damascus knew about a hole in the city wall. It's possible somebody had a house there and it was maybe a window. We know that the hole would've had to be fairly high though because if it was low, that would've made the city vulnerable to attack from outsiders. And so in the middle of the night, it says the disciples tied a rope to a large basket, and they put Saul inside the basket, and then they lowered him through the window outside the city wall, and that must have been a well-crafted basket, I'm thinking, and they didn't get caught. And so what Saul did is he booked it. He decided to run away far from Damascus, and so he headed back to Jerusalem, where he'd come from, hundreds of miles away. Now, remember this, Jerusalem's the very city where not long ago he had led the great persecution against Christians, and now he was coming back to Jerusalem as a Christian. How was that gonna go over? Well, Let's read, Acts 9, 26 to 30. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, to Tarsus. So when Saul returned to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Christians did not welcome him with open arms like the Damascus Christians had. That's not surprising though, right? The, 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 The Jerusalem Christians were scared of this man for good reason. And so they did not believe a word out of this guy's mouth. They did not believe he was really a disciple of Jesus now. They knew the old Saul. Keep in mind, this is the guy who just a few Uh, years earlier had arrested their family members and their friends and then beat them to death. This is the guy. And now Saul wants to be friends with them? This was not okay with them. This was very suspicious. It probably seemed like uh, an undercover sting or something. Like this is, he's doing something here. He's trying to trap us. But there was one disciple one disciple, disciple, who believed in Saul, and his name was Barnabas. And this is the same Barnabas we read about earlier in Acts chapter four who had sold a field that he owned and then he took the money that he made off of that field and he laid it down at the feet of the apostles to distribute among the poor. And Barnabas, this guy, from all accounts we see in scripture was just a loving, godly follower of Jesus. The apostles loved Barnabas, and his real name was actually Joseph, but they they called him Barnabas. They gave him the nickname Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. He, that's who Barnabas was. He had been a great encouragement to the apostles and to the early church, and so Barnabas here goes out on a limb, and he takes Saul, and he meets with Saul, and he listens to Saul's story, and and he believes Saul. He believes that Saul is telling the truth. And then he he's got some weight with the with the apostles, right? And so he takes Saul to the apostles and he vouches for Saul. And he brings he brings him to the apostles and he says, "You guys, Saul really did see Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus spoke to Saul. He rebuked him for the evil things he was doing." But Saul trusted in Jesus, just like you and I did, and he received the Holy Spirit, and then he preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now, because Barnabas did this, because he vouched for Saul, uh, the, the apostles and subsequently the other disciples in Jerusalem did accept Saul into their fellowship. And we know in other passages of the New Testament that the apostle Peter let Saul stayed at his house, at his place, which was a big deal. And Saul was welcome among the Christians. And he came and went from their gatherings. And he says that he was there for 15 days with them. And during those 15 days, he was doing what he had done in Damascus. He he was preaching boldly in the name of Jesus Christ to believers and to non-believers alike. And verse 29 says that Saul quickly ran into opposition. And surprisingly, his opposition here wasn't from his fellow Pharisees. Remember, he's a Pharisee, he's a big dog in the Jewish world. But the, the opposition wasn't from them or the members of the Sanhedrin. Saul's so strongest opposition at this point came from the Hellenists, who were the same people that rose up against Stephen in chapter 6. And just as a reminder, that the Hellenists were a group of Jews who came from outside of Jerusalem. They, they were the Greek Jews. They'd been influenced by Greek culture. They spoke Greek as their primary language, not Hebrew like the, the Jews in Jerusalem. And since Saul had come from a Hellenistic background himself, it's possible that the Hellenists felt that Saul was a traitor. Even more passionately, they felt that he was a traitor just like Stephen had been. And that's why they killed Stephen. So that was their track record with traitors. That's what they did to traitors. Now verse 69 says that Saul spoke with the Hellenists and he disputed against them. So in other words, Saul was not only preaching the gospel, but he was also in a way standing and teaching them. He was engaging in conversation with them about um, spiritual matters. And he was trying to, to hear their arguments against Jesus probably and then show them from their own scripture and from history and from his own experience with Jesus that Jesus really is the Messiah. But the passage says that the the hearts of the Hellenists were set against both Jesus and Saul and they were not open to conversation. As a side note here, this is a reminder that that while it is important for us as Christians to, to, to know why we believe what we believe, and it's important for us to be able to articulate our beliefs to others. At the end of the day, what non-believers need is to be born again through faith. They need new hearts. That's, that's the message of Scripture. Um, that's, uh, that's what uh, the greatest need of the non-Christian is because we we just need to keep pointing them to Jesus, having spiritual conversations with them, um, and, and saturating those conversations with prayer. Because what we need is, is the Holy Spirit to come in and intervene. Um, and, and so that's my, encur- that's my uh, exhortation for us is, as we're having conversations with those who don't believe, to be gentle and kind the way that the New Testament instructs us, And to saturate it in prayer, because God, I mean, Jesus can in a second change somebody and make them do a 180, right? And so we're begging him, Lord, please do that. (laughs) Um, Well, Paul tried to engage these Hellenists at this intellectual level, but it says in verse 29, they were seeking to kill him. And think about this, they were essentially treating Saul exactly the same way that Saul treated the Christians. They're just acting like he was act, had acted. And, um, and just as the Arabians and the Jews in Damascus had tried to kill Saul, so also now that the Hellenist Jews were seeking to kill him. But thankfully, it says some of the disciples heard about this, and they protected Saul. They took him out of the city. They took him to quite a ways away to the port city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, and they sh- put him on a ship, and they shipped him off up to Tarsus. And then today's passage concludes with this beautiful verse here in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church that verse 31 is talking about is the community of Christians throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. It's very important for us to remember, right, that the word church does not refer to this building. You, you could say, I'm gonna meet somebody at the church building. Um, it refers to, the word church refers to a community of Christians sharing a common life as they follow Jesus together. That's the church. It's a people. And so Cedar Home Baptist Church is not this building. Cedar Home Baptist Church is this community of Christians who share a common life as we seek to follow Jesus together. And in verse 31, with with Saul now on Team Jesus, the church experiences this sweet season of unity and peace. And specifically, verse 31 tells us five great things that were happening among the Christians in Palestine first the church had peace and probably this means that uh, they were experiencing a time when they weren't being terribly attacked by non-Christians but also they weren't experiencing great conflict and tor- turmoil between Christians they were at peace and I love that verse 31 mentions the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria and it says that they were at peace together because that had not been the case outside of Jesus. The Judeans and Galileans had not been at peace with the Samaritans in forever. But now the Judean Christians and the Samaritan Christians were united by their faith in Jesus. That's what brought these two opposing people groups together overnight. They were no longer divided due to the color of their skin or their different dialects or their significantly different beliefs and interpretations about God, now they shared one savior, Jesus. And they shared one Holy Spirit inside of them. And they shared one baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit into which they'd each been baptized. And they were all adopted by God into one family, his church. And they were no longer hostile toward one another, but they were at peace with one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give that to us too, (laughs) please. Second, verse 31 says that the church was being built up. The church was being strengthened. The church was, was doing what it was supposed to be doing. It was worshiping Jesus. It was devoting itself to scripture and to the Lord's Supper and to baptism. Uh, its members were sharing life together and edifying each other and taking care of one another. The church was exercising its faith muscles. It was growing into a stronger body built upon the gospel of Jesus. It was being built up. Third, verse 31 says that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. So the Christians lived in a daily, authentic fear of the Lord Jesus, okay. They revered Jesus and his word. They were devoted to Jesus and to his word. They knew what God could do whenever he wanted if someone sinned, which was drop him on the spot just like they'd seen him do with Ananias and Sapphira. They, they knew that Jesus wasn't messing around. They, they believed his words. They believed that he was coming back. They knew that Jesus was serious about having a pure, holy people, totally devoted to himself. Remember last week we talked about that word saint? And Acts use that, is going to use that word several times to refer to the Christians. And it means holy ones. It means God's people, his church set apart. They're saints because they're covered in the righteousness of Christ and he has ordained them to pursue the righteousness of Christ. And these Christians, they knew that Jesus was alive, he wasn't dead, he could appear at any time. Many of these very Christians had seen Jesus risen from the dead, they'd talked to him in his resurrected body, they'd witnessed him conquer death and they knew that you don't mess around, you don't play games with somebody with that kind of power. Okay? The church trembled at the power of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb. May we do the same. got God help us to do, do that. We were praying, I was praying with a few people this morning, we were just praying about, Lord help us to tremble at you and your word. Help us to stand in awe of you more than anything else. And then in fourth, uh, in verse 31, it says this interesting thing. It says that the church walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Okay? How in the world could the church walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit if they were also walking in the fear of the Lord? It's very interesting. I love how those two phrases are right next to each other. It's because of this. There's no greater peace... Then knowing that the one who is to be most feared in all of the universe is the one who is on your side. That's where peace is. And another name for the Holy Spirit is the comforter. So it's talking about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And, and while uh, we Christians live in fear of the living God whose, whose glory hopefully takes our breath away and makes us tremble, we also can live with great peace in our hearts and with a a hope for the future because that same awesome God has entered us and he lives in us and he wants to serve us and encourage us and comfort us and work in our lives for our joy and for the glory of his name. I was thinking about this phrase, you know, um, comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord, and I was thinking about anyone who might hear this message who's not a believer in Jesus. And I think the message here for you is that you also ought to fear God. When you hear about people in our community dying tragically and immediately, like I've I've been at the cemetery several times the past few weeks for different reasons. It should make you say, wow, that could have been me. What happens to me when that happens? What, what is my future? And what is my purpose here on earth? Jesus said, you have to figure out what, whether you will believe Jesus or not. He said that he's, he's awesome, He's greatly to be feared. He's in heaven, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, the mountains, those mountains, those awesome mountains that we love to look at, they're going to melt under his feet. Like wax. And when that happens, he says this, there are going to be millions and millions of people who are going to be asking those mountains to crumble on them and take them because they're so fearful of the Lord Jesus. And they're gonna be saying, we were wrong, just like Saul did. And this is the fact that if you're not in Christ, you do not have any grounds for comfort right now. You've rejected the comforter. If you wanna be set free from sin that puts you in bondage to fear and enslaves you to death, then you need to trust in Jesus because he loves you and he came to set you free. Pray to Jesus and ask him to save you and he will. Romans 10, nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So give your life and soul to Jesus, man. Romans. This is the other thing. So how do we live? How do we? How do we tremble at Jesus and also not live in paralytic fear or terror of Him? Well, Romans 8:1 is the one you need to know. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that awesome? This is why, I mean, this is so cool. This is why Jesus says, so when you see the mountains melt like wax, lift your heads. In other words, that's good news for you because the one melting the mountains is on your side. He's coming for you. I mean, that's, that's an amazing picture, an amazing promise of the hope that we have in Jesus. And for all of us who are trusting in Jesus today, whatever you're going through right now, I, I pray that you would seek the spirit just like I do and say, Lord, Holy Spirit, please comfort me. Not because I deserve it, but because you are gracious. And my prayer for our church family would be that as we seek to live a life together in Jesus, that the spirit would comfort us. Because there's a lot wrong in our lives and there's a lot wrong in our world and we need the Holy Spirit to comfort us. Thankfully, I mean, that's, that gives you a little insight into why Jesus says, it's better that I go, and you get the comforter. Because <laughs> he finished the work on the cross, and now he's applying the work and holding us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Fifth thing in this passage, in this verse, it says is that the church multiplied. Multiplied church multiplied. So through the speaking of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, filling those Christians, the Lord made many more people born again. The church grew numerically. So ordinary Christians like you and me, this is how it happened. Ordinary Christians like you and me were unleashed now to proclaim the gospel. We weren't, we weren't uh, they were no longer stuck to the temple, Jerusalem, but they were scattered throughout the land so that everybody is part of the priesthood of believers. Everybody can make disciples of Jesus in their homes and schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. And praise God here, he blessed their efforts um, through numerical growth and through the church multiplied. And we know that whenever the word of God is preached, it, it, uh, it accomplishes God's purpose. Right? It does not come back void. God is always accomplishing his purpose through through the, the, the reading of scripture, the proclamation of scripture. It doesn't always mean a lot of people are gonna turn their lives around and get saved. That's not what always happens. Um, and that kind of comes, comes to my first point of application for us, which I've got a few points. Um, first of all, God does not always bless faithful gospel ministry with the multiplication of Christians, but... Multiplication is what we should strive for as much as it's up to us, okay? So how do we know this? Well, Jesus told us to go make disciples of all nations. So he didn't say, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and just maintain. Just stay in your homes, have your little Bible studies. When you guys die off, I'll come get you, right? He said, I want you to go make more disciples. So. So I don't want you to maintain the status quo. I want you to expand. And that's what we want to do. We want to expand and advance God's kingdom on earth in our community. We don't want to see God's kingdom plateau. And so this plays itself out in a few different ways. In our, in our relationships with non-Christians who we want to love and point to Jesus, we are essentially sowers of the seed of the gospel to them. Okay. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would work through us and, and in the hearts of the people with whom we're sowing the seed of the gospel to. And at the same time, we recognize that I can't make that seed come to life in that person's heart. Jesus can, though. The Holy Spirit can. And so that's why we want to saturate our conversations and our efforts with prayer, right? We ask this is what we're doing. We're asking the Holy Spirit to overcome that person's resistance to Jesus. Overcome them, Jesus, and show them your irresistible grace because you love them so much that you're gonna break in and change them. Make that person a Christian. And more than just converts, right? That's part of it. Of course, you know, you become a Christian. Yes, praise God, that's when you're saved. But Jesus says, I want you to make disciples or followers of me. People who follow me, who imitate me. This is how the kingdom grows through the multiplication of disciples. And that's why as often as possible, we wanna be asking here at Cedar Home, how can we multiply disciples here in our church and in our community? And uh, this is why our church purpose says that we wanna glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered multiplication. So listen closely to a few questions here. And if you're in a community group, these would be good questions to ask this week. Christians, we wanna ask, who are the people God has put put in my life who I can invest in and help become disciple A disciple who loves Jesus and who loves other people and who rests in the gospel while they pursue the holiness of Jesus. Who's that person God's put in my life or people? We also wanna ask, how can I, listen to this, if you're a servant of the church, thank you for serving, using your gifts in our body and in our community. This is a question I want you to ask. How can I serve in a way that I'm not making myself irreplaceable? How can I train and disciple others to serve the Lord the way that I've learned to serve the Lord? Because I am very temporary and I am gonna croak. And I pray that I would disciple somebody who can disciple others the way that I learned to disciple others. And who learned to teach a Sunday school class and a community group and a Bible study, whatever, the way that someone taught me. We wanna ask, (laughs) How can we multiply community groups? I praise God that he's bringing a lot of guests to our church and my desire is to get them connected into community here and serving and using their gifts and encouraged in Jesus. And part of that is as community groups, we've gotta be asking as leaders and as participants, how can we be training more people to lead and host groups so that we can go start more groups and more people can be involved in community who want to be involved. And I would just say that, man, if you have a heart to host a group or a desire to learn how to lead a group, that's a great place to start. Please talk to me or somebody at the Information Center because we want to we, we help disciple you to do that. We want to ask, how can we as a church share what, we've, what God's given us so that we can start more churches like our church? So that more people can even uh, can, can hear the gospel and become disciples of Jesus. How can we multiply what's happening here in our church family? These are all questions we want to ask and, and we want to see more people saved and built up in Jesus. We want to see happen in our lives and in our community what we're seeing happen in this passage. And often this is what we have to realize though. We have to figure out where's the rub in me against this? Why is multiplication difficult for me? Well, this is why it's difficult, one reason. It requires you to think more of others than yourself. It requires you to think more about building others up than being in the comfort of your own community and your close friends. It doesn't mean you don't have friends, it doesn't mean you don't connect with your friends, but it means, boy, I really wanna expand the kingdom and be part of that too. So I encourage you as a Christian and as a community group and as a ministry, as a church, let's not pursue an easy, comfortable, inward-looking plateau. That is happening in churches all over the world. And what's happening, just as a side note, what's happening in the next 10 to 15 years, churches all over the country are gonna close their doors because the boomer generation is gonna die off. I don't mean that in a mean way, boomers. I just mean that's what's, that's what's gonna happen. And I have some friends who are really into this. We're talking about hundreds of churches closing their doors every day. And so what can we do now to set ourselves up for success in the sovereignty of God and praying for that that's gonna keep Cedar Home going for another 120 years? That's what we want. We wanna see this community of people be here another 120, whatever, 130 years we've been here. Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? If Cedar Home was 260 years old, that would be awesome. What can we do now? God's put us here at this place in history. What can we do now to help see that happen in the future? And to see as many lives touched by Jesus and living for the glory of his name. Let's ask God. Let's pray about that. Okay. Second here. I've got four applications, okay? Second, why did, Jesus mainly pre- why did Saul mainly preach the gospel of Jesus? It comes up several times in this passage. Acts 9.20 says, And immediately he, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And Acts 9.22 says that Saul was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 9.27 says that in Damascus, Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And Acts 9.28 says that in Jerusalem, Saul was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So the content of the message that Saul preached was that Jesus is God's son, the savior who died for sin, the resurrected Lord who lives and rules over us. Trust in him. (laughs) Why did Saul preach this message over and over again. Why in 1 Corinthians 15 does he write to Christians and say, I'm preaching this gospel again to you? Why didn't he mix it up more to keep people engaged? Well, if you've been at Cedar Home very long, I hope that you've heard the gospel many times in different venues. And I hope you know, part of what we wanna do is we wanna know what the gospel is so that we can articulate it outside of Sunday mornings. Why do we at Cedar Home, why are we so committed to preaching the gospel from all of scripture? And part of what I wanna do is give you a little insight into what's going on through our preaching methodology here. Why don't we preach more topical sermons? Why don't we give a talk every now on how to have a happier marriage, or how to be a better neighbor, or how to conquer my addiction to blank, okay? It's not because those things aren't important. Wouldn't that attract more people if we did that? Possibly. There's a lot of things you can attract people with, though. This is the same lesson in youth ministry that I learned. What you attract people with is what you attract them to. What we want to do is not attract people to flash. We want to attract them to Jesus. Okay? And so we preach the Bible and we preach the gospel from the Bible Because this is what scripture says. Believing the message of Jesus who was murdered and resurrected on our behalf is the way that we come to know God and it's also the way that God makes us more like Jesus by believing this every day. This is what a disciple is. Listen, someone who trusts in Jesus and is following Jesus, someone who is imitating jesus to the best of their ability while they rest in the message of the gospel knowing they're not going to do it perfectly okay we want to become disciples we want to make disciples and so on sunday mornings this is what we're doing we're preaching the gospel from scripture because the gospel is the foundation for our salvation which is being rescued from jesus by jesus and it's also the grounds of our the means of our sanctification which means becoming more like jesus okay so this is what i would say if we work hard at becoming better spouses and better parents and better neighbors apart from the gospel of jesus and apart from the power of the holy spirit then what is happening we are relying on our own power and we're seeking to do good works that will crush us if we fail at doing them perfectly. Or we will be prideful because we'll delude ourselves into thinking we are doing them perfectly already. Instead, I want to throw out these two words, which you, you kind of have to listen closely. This, we must rest in the indicative before the imperative, now let me explain that. We need to first rest our souls in the indicative of what Jesus has already done for us before we, want, before we work to follow all the imperatives that Jesus gives us. So an indicative is something that's been completed or is being completed or will be completed. The indicative is the gospel. It's finished. The work of salvation is done. We must rest in the indicative of the gospel before we work to do all the imperatives of scripture. They're both important. But if you try to go be like Jesus before resting in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, you're, you're in trouble, okay? And so, this is the other thing. <laughs> we have to start with the gospel because that's what changes our heart. That's what gives us right motives to wanna do the imperatives, right? People could do the imperatives. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good person. We know that, right? The question is, is your heart living for the glory of Jesus? Is that what is fueling your love for other people? Um, I could read you a list every Sunday morning of seven ways to be a better Christian. And you would either walk away from this place crushed because you know you're not doing it or that you should be doing what you should be doing or you might walk out of here full of pride and say, yep, got it done. I'm the Christian I need to be and therefore God loves me because I'm obedient. And that's not the gospel. What we want to do here through preaching is to follow Paul and Peter's model which is where we preach the gospel first, which changes our hearts, enables us to love God, and enables us to desire to do what he wants us to do. And then as we read through scripture, we see what he desires for our lives, and he is the one who works in us and gives us the will and the energy to do the work of becoming like him. So on Sundays, We're preaching the gospel to believers and non-believers, and we're addressing topics as God brings them up in his word, and in addition to this time, we offer topical gospel-centered teaching in Sunday school, and community groups, and Bible studies, and conversations, and other venues that do relate to parenting, and marriage, and apologetics, and evangelism, and finance, and work, and everything in between, because those are very important areas. But we can't focus on all of them instead of Jesus. We gotta be grounded in Jesus first and in his love for us. Third, uh, today's passage reminds us that we who proclaim the gospel should expect persecution, should expect to be persecuted. The the negative and hostile response that, that Saul got when he preached the gospel was not abnormal. This is normal. We don't feel that as much because we happen to live in a country who have laws that has laws that protect free speech, but Christians in many other countries and throughout the centuries have not have the right of protected speech, but this is what they're doing. They're still preaching Jesus. Here's a question: Would you tell others about Jesus if it were dangerous to you and your family to do so? Because there's a lot of people around our world faced with that question every day. Are you telling anybody now when it is legal? I was listening to this this Christian band this week that I was I kinda like. A self-proclaimed Christian band. They're great music. Problem is I think if you can find great music and a great message, great theology, that's like the sweetest thing in the world to me. And I'm always on the search for that, and sometimes I'll settle for one or the other. But if I can get both, man, that's where I want to be. I love music, okay? Um, The problem with this band is that the gospel message that they were sharing in their words is not the gospel message of Jesus, of the Bible. And so the chorus of the song that I kept hearing repeated as I was working on something was, we want to be your hands and feet. Without words, we'll let our actions speak. We want to be your hands and feet. Without words, we'll let our actions speak. And it's the kind of the gist of the theology that perme, permeates the entire album. And it's not merely pro-good deeds, which of course we're pro-good deeds, right? But it's actually anti-gospel preaching. Enough of the gospel preaching. It's time to get out there and love people, right? That's, that's the message. Quit talking, quit praying, get out and do something. This isn't productive. And the problem with that is that gospel proclamation should never be separated from love and kindness and concern for others. And for Christians who want to multiply disciples, if the only thing they do is make disciples who care for the poor and show kindness to everybody, which is fine, then they're going to make lots of disciples who love people but who don't know Jesus and who don't love Jesus because they never heard the gospel And ironically, I wrote this on Thursday, and then on Friday, I got a text, and I read that the lead singer of this band who wrote these lyrics now says he no longer believes in God. And ironically, I was thinking, I don't think the message in his music's gonna change that much. Because he's all for feeding hungry people, but he's not about pointing them to the one who can feed them eternally. Christians, we're not called to be mere philanthropists. We're called to be people who trust in Jesus, who imitate Jesus, and who proclaim Jesus. And so we need the Holy Spirit's help. We need to do exactly what they did in Acts. We need to say, Lord, please give me boldness and compassion to share Jesus with others, even in the face of persecution. And may the Lord help us do that. May he help us to love even our enemies. And fourth, Today's passage shows us the beauty of solidarity among Christians. The beauty of solidarity. Who, am I still on? Yep. Who was it that welcomed Saul? Who was it that took a risk on Saul? Who was it who helped Saul escape from danger? First from Damascus and then from Jerusalem. It was the brethren, the Christians, the disciples. And if you're a new Christian, listen to me. If you've trusted in Jesus recently and now it's the desire of your heart to follow him, praise God. The first thing you need to do is surround, besides being baptized, is surround yourself with other Christians. Because a new Christian, Satan's not happy with you. He's not happy with your decision to trust in Jesus and to now make more disciples of Jesus because he lost you. You're no longer on his team. That means you have a target on your back. And Satan, this is what will happen. Satan will use your friends, your family, your workplace, and all sorts of weird circumstances to try to quickly get you to renounce your faith in Jesus. So this is the exhortation to you. Do not stand alone outside the flock of sheep here at Cedar Home. Join the flock. Join the church, join our community groups, join a Bible study, meet with another Christian for study. Keep attending church services on Sunday morning. Yeah, there's a million reasons not to come to a church service. You need it though. Stick with the other disciples just like Saul did right when he became a Christian. And this is the message I have for those of us who have been Christians. Um, I pray that you then, as we see in this passage, would desire to keep peace and unity in the church there are a million things to criticize and complain about there just are right and i know i'm a perfectionist okay in addition to that i happen to be the one of the pastors here okay there are a million things to criticize and complain about this is what happens you leave us go to the church down the street you're going to find a million things to criticize about them too give up on the church i'm done with the church i People are the worst. Okay, go to your house and be your own church. If you're honest, you're gonna find a million things to complain about yourself too, if you're honest. So, recognizing that we're good at this naturally in our sinful nature, at pointing fingers and finding things to criticize, let's instead seek to be peacemakers and encouragers of the church. That's so much more life-giving. Let's build up the church. Let's strengthen it like we see in this passage. And like the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, this is our prayer. May the Lord grant us more peace, more times of unity and encouragement where we're being built up together in the faith and we're walking in the fear of the Lord together and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace will he work in us and through us to multiply his glory through us and for our blessing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word, God. And uh, we're just totally dependent on you. We can't do anything without you. And we just confess, God, we are messed up. We have so many issues in our lives, and we're broken, and we need you. And and, uh, please, God, help us to continue to repent, to turn away from our sin and to turn in you, to turn away from keeping our eyes on other people and to keep our eyes on you instead. We need your help, Lord Jesus. I mean, it's, it's, it really is amazing, God, that you and your grace would save any of us, not because in any way are you indebted to us, but because you're gracious and you are love. And that now you would want to transform our lives and use us in this community and world to, to worship you and to point people to you and to use the gifts that you've given us to serve you in the church. Thank you, God. Help us not to stay on the bench, but to get up and join the team and be in fellowship and serve with the gifts you've given us, God. Thank you for the privilege of that. We love you, Jesus. Please protect us and give us courage. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.